0: Are visiting with us or new to TCPC downtown? We are uh, going through the book of First Peter at both of our campuses. Uh, and uh, I, I got to be with you last week and again tonight, and then uh, we'll finish out First Peter with you next week, Lord willing. So um, if you re- recall, um, a month or so ago when we ordained officers, we jumped ahead to chapter 5. And uh, I believe Marshall preached uh, the first five, five verses of chapter five because it fits so well with uh, the theme of Ordination Sunday, where it talked about elders um, and had an exhortation to elders and so forth. So uh, we've actually already preached uh, verses one through five. So we're moving into uh, verse six through 11. And then we will uh, finish up next week with kind of some final remarks that Peter has Um and, uh, and be done with First Peter. Uh, but tonight we turn our attention to what's one of the most, uh, one of the more famous passages um, in the New Testament. One of the most uh, powerful, comforting, challenging, all those different things are wrapped up in this. Very well known. So let's give our attention uh, to God's word here. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Word of the Lord. Help us, O Lord, to approach your word rightly in all humility and teachability. Help us not to apply it to others before we apply it to ourselves. Help us be open and free to let it confront us, challenge us, convict us, and, and Lord, yes, comfort and assure us. Um, Give me strength, God, uh, to to labor well over your word and to proclaim it faithfully and for you people to hear it uh, as you intend for them to hear it. All of that, Lord, is the work of your Holy Spirit, so come, Spirit. And uh, do what only you can do and work the application of our souls. We submit ourselves to your teaching, trusting that it is good. For Christ's glory and the good of those who are here, we pray. Amen. So we are coming to the end of a, uh, what's been a year-long journey through the book of First Peter. Uh, we said from the beginning and have said repeatedly throughout that we chose uh, Peter's famous uh, letter to exiles because we believe it is important for us um, in the, uh, the, the, the Western evangelical church, it's important for us to learn the what and the how of exilic life because we really, truly do believe that is upon us in in more ways than ever before. And we've, we've, we've learned a lot about what that means, um, certainly. It's been very helpful. But today we come to Peter's parting words to exiles, and that matters. Um, you all know, we all know the weight and the power of final words. Um, we know that, that the most memorable, the most intentional, the most meaningful words that we say are parting words, final words, whether it's the end of a speech or saying goodbye to a friend or even words on a deathbed. <coughs> our last words are our most powerful words. So picture this. The persecution of the early church is starting to really get ugly. Uh, for a while, they were kind of this weird little following, but now they're becoming a, a really growing movement that Rome is starting to pay attention to. Um, An unpredictable, uh, narcissistic, history tells us, narcissistic, evil man, Nero is in power. Um, And Peter and the other apostles can feel it. They, they They can, the leadership of the early church can feel that things are about to get really ugly for Christians. And indeed they would, just shortly after this letter, Nero's infamous persecution explodes upon the early church, bloody massacre. And so the apostle Peter, in many ways, um, bearing the weight of responsibility and leadership of the early church, and in a lot of ways, uh, the, the early Christians um, were all looking to, of course, to the apostolic authority, but to Peter as, as kind of the leader of the apostles. All of these early, persecuted, fearful, struggling, suffering Christians looking to this one, person saying, what are we to do? And so he sits down and he writes a letter. um, A letter that will be passed around to all of the early churches in Asia Minor. um, Which is his definitive counsel. His definitive word to these suffering Christians. That's the letter we've been living in now for a year. Now imagine he said that all, all, all that he felt led to say, okay? Um, he, he he's, he's told us uh, this is how exiles are to relate to, to, to the outside world, to Rome, to unbelievers, to each other. He's talked a lot about submission and humility. He's talked a lot about suffering. He's, he said all that he felt led to say and give counsel on. And now it's time to wrap up his letter, to conclude his letter. How is he going to finish it? What will be his final words to these weary exiles, many of whom will soon to be martyred exiles? What is the Apostle Peter, the leader of the early church, what is his final words to Christians who are about to endure what is probably the greatest persecution the world has ever known? The words that he chose are the words that are before us this evening. This is really heavy. This is really significant. And it's in that way that we enter into it. What he does is he gives three exhortations, three final exhortations. They're going to seem a bit disjointed because, quite frankly, they are. Uh, they stand alone as three different uh, concluding charges, three different um, exhortations is what I'm calling them, three different thoughts um, that he has for the church that are kind of disconnected. And, and, and so they'll feel that way. It, it's all, this is almost going to feel like, Three mini-sermons. My point, the, the passage doesn't flow as nicely as the as, as as passage normally does, so my points will feel a little bit disconnected. They probably should be three different sermons, but um, uh, if, if I if I were to turn the timetable, they would be three different sermons. But old Marsh here is keeping us going, so we're, so we're going to do three mini-sermons in one. This is Marshall's fault if you wanted more detail. Uh, so let me summarize them this way. Uh, Peter has a final exhortation about our fear, our foe, and our future. Fear, foe, future. Let's look at each. His final word to our fears, uh, verses 6 and 7. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Therefore, here in verse 6, hearkens back. Uh, to the previous thought and like I said it's been weeks since we've been there so uh, let me remind you uh, he concludes verse 5 the verse right before this with this God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble so his application in our verse is that we should therefore humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you he got the mighty hand of God opposes the proud or the mighty hand of God exalts the humble therefore You should choose humility, is what he's saying. (laughs) You should humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. But what does that even mean, to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God? Well, his answer is actually fascinating. Notice at the beginning of verse seven there. Look at the grammar. Casting your anxieties. This is, this is not the beginning of a new command. Like verse 6's command is humble yourself. And then in verse 7, it's cast your anxieties. It is a continuation of the command to humble oneself. That's, that's why it's phrased that way, casting. This is, what, um, this is what, in the Greek grammar, this is what we call an instrumental participle, which is a ba- basically a fancy way to say um, this, this is an instrument of what came before it. So humble yourself how? By casting your anxieties upon the Lord. Now, making that connection is really, really important. What is the connection between humility and casting your anxiety upon God? Well, I'll state it this way in the negative. It takes pride to be anxious and it takes humility to give up your anxiety. Anxiety is the fruit of our arrogant overestimation of our own importance, strength, wisdom, control, all of these different things. And consequently, um, you um, you have to be really humble for you to lay down anxiety. Because to do so is to entrust your concerns to God because you believe only God can handle this and you can't. Anxiety says, I have to handle this. I have to fix this. I have to control this. Humility says... I can lay it down and hand it to God. The word there, casting, is is really rich in imagery. It just, it has the idea of just taking your anxieties and just throwing them at God. (laughs) Here, you take them so that you are done with them completely. And don't miss the expectation is all of your fears cast all your anxieties. That takes a special form of humility, doesn't it? A special form of humility to just be rid of anxiety because you believe God can handle it better than you can. I'm done with anxiety because I don't think I'm good at being in control, so I'm just going to stop being in control. I don't know about you, but um, if you're anything like me, you don't have humility like that. And the problem is is you can't conjure up something like that. I've tried. It doesn't work. Have you tried just like, all right, I'm done with you, anxiety. Good luck, right? Well... Peter anticipates the difficulty of this call to cast all of your anxieties and entrust them to the Lord. And what he does here is he gives you a very, very precious uh, promise, very precious reason that you can do this, that you can trust God with your fears, that you can just let them go. He says, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. There are many things he could have chosen there, right? Right? many things that would have made sense. Cast your anxieties on God because he's strong. Cast your anxieties upon God because he's faithful. Cast your anxieties upon God because he's sovereign. Because he's omnipotent. And on and on the attributes could go. But instead, in what is actually, honestly, one of the most intimate statements about God in the Bible, that the simple wording right there um, is one of the most intimate statements about Almighty God in all the Bible. Instead, Peter just says, He cares for you. And now you know why that's important? Because I don't think any of us doubt God's strength, God's power, God's faithfulness, etc. I think we doubt his care. In the heat of our fear, I don't think we wonder, is God powerful? I I think we wonder, does God care? When I'm laying awake at night with my anxieties, I'm not wondering, is He omnipotent? I'm just wondering if He's there. And so Peter is telling us what we need to know. We don't need to know that God's strong. We know that. We don't need to know that He's sovereign. We know that. We don't need another attribute of God. We need this tender statement that God cares for you. And beloved, it's actually true. When Peter says God cares for you, what he means there is that God cares for you. He does. Sometimes the simplest statements are the most profound. So I'm just gonna leave it as that. I'm not gonna try to expound upon it. Christian, God cares for you personally. And Peter says that to these exiles fully aware of their circumstances, fully aware that everything around them is screaming at them, God doesn't care for you. But Peter's saying, actually he does, which means our circumstances are a terrible indicator of whether God loves us or cares for us. But unfortunately that's where we tend to look. When things are good, God cares. When things are bad, God doesn't care. But the Bible is telling you right now, definitively, this doesn't take exegesis. It's just straight up fact, no interpretation needed. The Bible is telling you right now, God cares for you. So are you going to believe your circumstances or are you going to believe your Bible? God cares for you. Therefore, humble yourself by casting all of your fear upon him. So that's his exhortation for these fearful exiles. The second one has to do with our foe. Verse eight: Be sober-minded. That, by the way, that that wording right there is a bookend of the entire letter. The first commandment, uh, the first command given to exiles in chapter one, is be sober-minded, and now here Peter concludes the letter with the exact same. Wording, be sober minded, which means it's clearly important to him. And the implication is, of course, that we are easily lulled asleep, so to speak, and are prone to forget the serious realities that are all around us. What's interesting about this is that Peter has to tell persecuted exiles to wake up. One would think they'd be awake, right? One would think they would be very alert considering the danger that they were all facing. But if even persecuted exiles can be lulled into apathy, how much more should we be aware of this temptation surrounded by such prosperity and comfort? It is so easy, so easy to forget that we are right now in the heat of serious spiritual battle going on as we speak. But lest we forget, Peter gives us a sobering reason why we need to sober up. He says, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. What a, what a provocative verse. Right after Peter says, God cares for you, he feels the need to remind us, and the devil wants to devour you. God cares for you, and there's a devil who wants to devour you. And as you know by now, first Peter focuses on the opposition and persecution from the world. But here at the end, what Peter does is he pulls back the curtain a bit to inform us that behind the worldly opposition is satanic activity that is actually after your ruin. In other words, it's not the suffering that we should necessarily be fearing around here. It's what Satan will do with the suffering. It's the evil forces behind the suffering. It's, it's what he's tempting you into by the suffering, namely using it to, to, to make shipwreck of your faith and ruin your soul. The imagery is, is, is uh, it's chilling, really. Um, my kids never remember anything from my sermon. Boy, they were talking about this this morning. The, the devil stalking about like a lion, trying to find someone to devour. That will sober you up which is precisely his point, right? He is saying, you be sober and alert because the devil is certainly sober and alert as he prowls around trying to find slumbering, slothful prey as his next meal. Satanic activity never takes a day off. Every minute of every day, evil alive and active, seeking the ruin of those who bear the name of Jesus. Jesus. And if you're uh, one of these uh, modern, um, progressed Western individuals who thinks the idea of, of devil and, and evil spiritual forces and all that is just silly and nonsense, um, uh, that, that's really dangerous. That's really dangerous to deny the reality of evil forces in the spiritual realms. There is a devil. And every minute, he and his forces of evil are alive and active, seeking the ruin of those who bear the name of Jesus, and negligent Christians are easy prey for such a vigilant adversary. Peter's exhortation here is more than alertness, it's active engagement. Verse 9, resist him, firm in the faith. That word that we translate resist is used elsewhere in the New Testament for rejection of the gospel. So picture hard-hearted, unbelief, people who are who are not just indifferent to the gospel, but they have a hatred for the gospel. They're hardened. They will, not, uh, they will not give in to the gospel. That should be your disposition towards the devil is what he's saying. Refuse Satan like a militant, hard-hearted atheist refuses the gospel. And so all of this graphic imagery in verse 8 begs the question of application. Now we have to stop and... And press in a little bit here, don't we? Because it's, it's so strong. The language is such strong application. And, and I would just say this. Do you approach the Christian life with the earnestness that it deserves? Do you approach the Christian life with the, with the seriousness that it demands? Do you wake up in the morning with the mindset, I must commune with God in Scripture and in, in prayer, or I might be devoured today? Do you view the subtlest little temptations, the the lustful glance, the the word of gossip, the malicious talk, the greed, the bitterness, the seed of bitterness in your heart towards another. Do you view all of those small uh, seeds of sin as the ploy of the devil to give birth to a destroyed life and soul? Do you approach public worship like a soldier approaches training for battle? The point is, we aren't playing games here. That's what he's trying to get across. This is not a game. So do you approach the Christian life with the earnest seriousness that it deserves, or do you just tinker on social media and binge on Netflix? Now, by way of help in the battle, Peter offers these words of consolation. Resist him, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Do you know what he's saying there? And it's such a freeing promise, and it's this, you're not alone. We we hear this serious challenge, and we tend to immediately individualize it. I'm alone in a fight against a world that hates me and a devil that wants to devour me. That's not daunting. That's just utterly demoralizing. But Peter gives us this vision of a worldwide community of faith. He calls it a brotherhood, and I love that language. A a brotherhood, a global band of brothers engaged with you in this battle. He's saying they're suffering just like you're suffering. They're struggling just like you're struggling. They're fighting this fight of faith just like you are. They're failing just like you fail. They're repenting just like you have to repent. They're praying for you as you pray for them. That's the imagery. They're with you. Jesus promised that the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. Now that's a corporate promise, not an individual one. But Peter here is saying, you're a part of the corporate. You're a part of the people to whom has been given this promise. So take heart, you're not alone. Now go join the brotherhood and fight this foe. That's what he's saying. Peter's exhortations. Our fear, our foe, now we conclude it all with our future. Verses 10 and 11 truly serve as the conclusion to the letter. There are, <clears throat> there are some brief customary words that we're going to look at next week that are actually fascinating. I'm, I'm excited to preach them. But for all intents and purposes, the amen at the end of verse 11 there is the amen of the whole letter. So this is truly his final word. And it is a word of promise, specifically a promise about their future to these weary and suffering exiles, who within the next few years will have to endure the bloody massacre of Nero's persecution, and to us, exiles not like them, but certainly our own exile, facing the the growing antagonism of the world, the secularization of the West, To all these struggling, suffering exiles, Peter says this, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. A few noteworthy observations to see here that just stood out to me as I meditated on these verses. Three to be precise. The first is this. Notice the play on words that Peter uses to put our suffering into perspective. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory. A little while suffering compared to an eternal glory. I'll take it. Right? I'll take that deal. And you should too. I will bear the cross of Jesus for a little while now that I might be received into the glory of Jesus for all eternity. So name your suffering and put it in perspective is what he's trying to do here. Name it, and I mean that, name it. What is it? Whatever it is, no matter how severe it is, no matter how long it lasts, including it may last a lifetime. There are sufferings (laughs) that we endure that last a lifetime. Name your suffering and know this, it is destined to be utterly overwhelmed by an eternal weight of glory. So much so that it will appear as only a blip of inconvenience within an eternal story of God's goodness. Name it and know that it will be overwhelmed by an eternal weight of glory. Next thing I want you to notice here is how Peter describes that future glory. The God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Once again, Peter gets really intimate here, right? It is is such a precious image. God in Christ will, and then just that one word inserted there changes everything will himself restore you. He isn't delegating the task of your restoration. He wants it for himself. He wants to do it himself. Have you ever read the Gospels and just found your heart pining after those experiences? Like, what was that like? What would it be like to be the leper that Jesus touched and was cleansed? What would it be like to be the prostitute that Jesus said, I don't condemn you? What would it be like to be the paralytic who actually got the honor of having Jesus himself say to him, your sins are forgiven? We all struggle with assurance. I don't think I'd struggle with assurance if Jesus himself by his own lips said you're forgiven. I think I'd believe him. What would it be like to be a The blind man who Jesus himself touched his eyes and he could see. To be a disciple that Jesus himself knelt before and washed your feet. And on and on these experiences go. Well, Peter is promising that you will have your turn with Jesus. Or better, he will have his turn with you. That he is personally waiting for you himself. So that he personally, himself, can restore you. That it will be Christ's hands that wipe away your tears, Christ's arms that embrace you, Christ's touch that will heal you, Christ's lips that will say, I actually do forgive you. God in Christ will himself, and that makes all the difference, will himself make you new. Now, for one last final assurance, as beautiful as that sounds, one last final assurance that it's true and it can be trusted with unreserved confidence. Peter concludes it all with this word from verse 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That is a customary ending. If you're familiar with your Bible, it sounds very, very... Uh, it It sounds very familiar, you've heard wording like that, but there is one small little modification, and it matters. Typically it would say, to him be what forever and ever? Glory, right? To him be glory forever and ever. Peter concludes his promise to suffering, persecuted minority exiles that are about to be slaughtered for their faith, to him be the dominion. That matters. What's he getting at? Peter wants them and he wants us to know the Lord Jesus Christ reigns. Do what you need to do, Nero, Jesus reigns. His dominion reigns over Rome and it reigns over Nero and every empire of history. His dominion reigns over ISIS and any other caliphate they wish to establish. His dominion reigns over the United States, over Donald Trump, over Vladimir Putin. His dominion reigns over the rise of China's dominance. His dominion reigns over the secularism of the West and the universities of the West that espouse it. All of them will fall. All of them will be forgotten and yet standing supreme over the rise and fall of every civilization, transcending the debris pile of every culture is one name, the name that is above every name, the name that is Jesus Christ. Far surpassing any and all kingdom, empire, or society of men is the eternal dominion of King Jesus. And that is his final word to exiles. His final, final word is that Jesus Christ will have the final word. Let me pray. Jesus, you reign. You rule. We look at our circumstances and we doubt. We look at your Bible and we trust. Despite what our world says to us, despite what our stories say to us, you rule and you reign, Lord Jesus. And your name is above every name. Assure our hearts now, because we need it, through this meal, which is the, the, the sacrament is the final word of every sermon, because it proclaims your death and your victory until you come. And so we pray that you would fill us now with the assurance of the truth we just heard. Jesus Christ, you rule and reign. Rule and reign over our hearts, we pray. Amen.